You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. My name is Gary. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. And last Sunday, Easter Sunday, I wasn't here. I was in Kansas City, Missouri, not Missouri, Missouri, uh, celebrating an event with my older son, Don. My older son, uh, we celebrated last weekend, on Thursday, he reached the half-century mark. What does that say about me? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, old, old guy, yeah. We had a great time back there. Uh, Don and Susan have been married 23 years now, and Lizzie and Michael, brilliant. We were at their church last Sunday, a, a smaller church, more traditional way it does stuff, and just sitting together and praising Jesus together. And in that process, of course, I'm thinking about this sermon that I'm doing today on Genesis 25:26, And I'm thinking about older and younger and all that kind of stuff. And I'm with Don, my older son, and I'm thinking birth order type stuff. You know, you've seen this stuff. What about firstborns? They got to run the show, right? Mm-hmm. They're uh, kind of used to being in charge of things. They need to be the center of attention. If they're not, they start doing things. Uh, they're responsible typically because they've done that. They're used to take care of and protecting. I mean, those birth order type things. How about second and last sons? They don't have to worry about any competition from below, so they're kind of entitled and kind of believe in their center of attention, because they usually are. And they're used to being taken care of. tend to be a little more, I'm willing to receive being taken care of and that sort of stuff. How does it work with, no, which am I, first or second? First, of course, (laughs) without a doubt. Ask my sister, she'll tell you. When I think about Jacob and Esau, we're talking about two older, younger. And in that story, the firstborn, secondborn dynamic becomes a key piece of what's going on. So I'd invite you, whether you're here together in our service, uh, grab your phone, grab your Bible. There are worship notes on the back. If you're here by internet, grab your Bible. Uh, The PowerPoint's on the website. You can always download it. Genesis 25 I'm not going to do both of the chapters. It's just too much for one sermon. You wouldn't want to be here until 2 o'clock, would you? Would you? I'd love to do the whole thing, you know. Uh, Starting verse 21 of Genesis 25. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Does that sound familiar? The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so he named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heels, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, 
But Rebekah of Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why it's all called to eat him. Jacob replied, first, <laughs> sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, no, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. I want to dig into this section a bit. It's, it's one of those foundational stories that gets referred to a number of times later in Scripture. It's just clear, full of stuff. But it starts here. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. What do you do when despite your very best efforts, it didn't work? I look at this and I think, okay, he prayed. What's he praying for? Is he praying, Lord, take away my childlessness? I need a kid to play with because I like bouncing babies and playing football with my sons. Or is he praying for his wife in the midst of her now negative status because she doesn't have a baby? And the text says he prayed for Rebecca. And I think that's true. I think Isaac is a, is a good man. And when you can't control stuff, when you've done all you can reasonably do and there's no way out, maybe even before that, you pray to the Lord and the Lord answered. Praise be to him this time. He doesn't always, but this time he did. And she became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. Now jostled. NIV uses, almost every other translation uses a little different word. It uses the word struggled. And by struggled here, this is like uh, the United States struggling with Russia. It's not just a, hey, what's going on? It's banging each other. These kids are fighting with each other in the room. They're warring. I mean, this is a war word that's being used here. They're fighting with each other within her, and, and she said, why? She didn't understand this violent movement within her. What in the world is going on here? So she inquires of the Lord. See, it, there's a pattern here that again shows itself in how we should live in our life, and that is to, to let God, hey, give me the narrative to understand what's going on inside me. Give me the information I need to do that. Now, just to let you know, this is a common question. What is God up to in my life? What is his will for my life? What should I be doing? Next week, second and third service, we'll be doing a, one of our grace forums on finding the will of God, and this will be part of it, inquiring God. It'll be up in 208 upstairs, so if you want to be a part of that next week, plan on it. Because we want to know, how do you inquire of the God, and how do you know that you're getting it right coming out of this? Because that's a fundamentally important kind of thing to do. The Lord answers. And it's a weird answer, isn't it? 
There are two nations in your womb? Now, my daughter Bethany has twins in her womb. She's about 25 weeks along, and she'd be willing to believe she's got nations in her womb right now. (laughs) She would be willing to believe that. There's a picture on her Facebook page of her two older kids, Judah and Emily, with their hands on her tummy as the babies are moving inside with this weird look on their face. Oh my gosh, look at this, you know. Well, this is more than this. These are fighting in her womb, and it's two nations in her womb. Two nations in your womb? How weird is that? There are two nations. Now, clearly, this is saying more than just the two babies. Two nations are competing in her womb? Like, what is going on? This is not helpful, God. This is not helpful. Two people are in you, one people is stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, in that context, firstborn is, I mean, firstborn is the one who has the leadership in, in the home after daddy dies. No authority while daddy's alive, but after daddy dies, gets a double share in the inheritance and a higher level of responsibility in the family system. The older will serve the younger. That's backward. That's backward. And I look at this. God chooses the younger. And the younger is the weaker, typically, even contemporary birth order studies. When I look at the rest of Scripture, I find God is not only choosing the younger or the youngest. He chooses the widow. In that system and in today's system, relatively powerless. He chooses the orphan, who so often is in huge need and doesn't have much to contribute, at least not early on. He chooses the stranger who doesn't know how to get things done around here, doesn't have the social capital to make a difference. He chooses the poor, who has an economic power to even take care of themselves. This is the God who chooses the younger, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the stranger. I look at this, I look at it from my perspective. I'm not the powerless person. You know, I'm upper-middle-class lifestyle, own a home, I got all kinds of social capital, family legacy, wife who loves me, great church to be a part of. I am not the widow, the orphan, the stranger. What does that make me feel? That God tends to choose people other than me. When I look at that picture in Scripture, I mean, he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't work with me. It's that he also works with the one that people tend to look right past and ignore. I was driving over here this morning and saw a guy in a parking lot over where Radio Shack used to be in a wheelchair. I know nothing about the man, but he was pushing his wheelchair, and it's a little bit of a hill there, and he's backward pushing his wheelchair up this, the hill there. And I thought about it, I thought, that's who God would choose, not me, the rich guy driving my van. Now, this choosing, to be sure, is about blessing. He's going to give blessing to people, and he's going to call us to service. This choosing that God does, the younger over the older, is not about eternal salvation here. It's not. 
It's who's going to receive the blessing, who's going to receive the promise, who's going to get the call to service to take that blessing to all the nations, because that is always there. And he picks the one that most people would pass over because they think your resume isn't up to it. That's where he's at. It's Jacob over Esau. Now, to be sure, as we're going to see the rest of the story playing out over the next several weeks as we continue to explore this story, it's an amazing story. The fact that Esau is passed over for this blessing does not mean God's done with Esau. In fact, we're going to find it in the story. He turns out to be a pretty good guy in a pretty good place. But Jacob is chosen over him, and Israel is chosen over Edom. Now, can I geek out on you for a bit? To be okay? I'm going to do it anyway, but I just thought I'd ask your permission. <laughs> Romans chapter 9 is one of those really, 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 really interesting things, and there are different interpretations of it. And it cites this story, obviously. This is Revelation 9, starting in verse 11. Yet before the twins were born, there's our story, or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, and here it quotes, the older will serve the younger. There you go. So, question. Why does Israel, Jacob, get the place of blessing? And what does Paul tell us? Without any question, so does Moses, the author of Genesis. Why does, why does Jacob, Israel, get the place of blessing? Well, it's very simple. It's all about God. He says, I'm choosing that one, and I'm instead of the normal firstborn. Okay, good. That works. But the next verse, the next verse, 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Oh my gosh. Why? I can get a good and gracious and sovereign God picking love Jacob, but why would he hate Esau before he'd done anything? He wasn't even born yet. And this is not only weird, this is wrong. Right? A just God doesn't do that. Okay, well, let's dig in a bit. Obviously, I've got a point I'm trying to make here. The older serve the younger. Where's that from? It's a quotation. Where's it from? We just looked at it. Come on. Where's it from? <laughs> Genesis 25. Yes, this is a seminary classroom. Like, pay attention. <laughs> Where's this from? Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. Where's that from? Is that from Genesis 25? The answer is no, it's not. That's not from Genesis 25. That is from Malachi. Genesis tells a story that happened maybe 1800 B.C., give or take a bit. Malachi is written after the Babylonian exile. It's written like 400 B.C. I mean, that's, that's a long time later. So, when you see it's from Malachi, what should you do? You should go back to Malachi and see where it's from. So, let's do that. Malachi chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord. He's saying that to Israel after the Babylonian captive. They're back in the land, and things are not going well. They are not. 
And they say, you know, like, don't love us that much, God. You're just beating the snot out of us, and you're not doing good for us right now. And what does he say? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declared the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. There's the phrase. But he keeps going. And I've turned his hill country into wasteland and left his inheritance to the dead of jackals. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we'll rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. Who's it talking about here? Talk about Edom. Not Esau, 1,500 years earlier. Edom. Why does God hate Edom? Why does God hate Edom? Well, the answer is really pretty simple. They keep on being wicked. God calls them repentance through the prophets, and they refuse, and they stay on being wicked. Why does God hate them? Because they're persistently wicked, evil people. Okay, that kind of makes sense. I can see God hating evil people. How's Israel living? 400 BC, how is Israel living? We keep reading the rest of the book of Malachi, and they keep on being wicked too. What does that suggest? What should God do to Israel when they're being wicked? He should do what? Demolish them. Why? That's what he does to wicked people, except it's not. What does God do to wicked Israel? He continues to what? Why? Why would he continue to love wicked Israel? Why does God hate Esau before he's born? Back in Genesis chapter or sorry, in Romans chapter 9, why does he hate Israel, Esau? He doesn't. He doesn't. This is not saying that he hates Esau before he's born. It doesn't say that. In context of Malachi, this is saying he hates wicked Edom, which totally makes sense. The God of justice would hate an evildoer. Think of the pimp living on your street who wants to take your daughter away into his Sex trafficking business. What's your attitude toward that pimp? You'd uh, want to invite him over for dinner, right? Maybe not. See, the question here, the question here, because the next phrase that I haven't put up here is, is God unjust? The thing is, why does he love Israel even when they're acting like Edom? Why? That's just the way he is. He is faithful to his promise. He does not give up. He is persistent to bless even persistent sinners. The only condition is will you give up and receive his blessing? See, that's a picture of who God is. That's what's pictured back in Genesis in seed form. Paul unpacks in Romans chapter 9. What we're saying here is God remains faithful to Israel even when they act like Edom. Now that's an important perspective. That is an important lesson. I talked to a fellow this week who had had a rather dramatic conversion to Christ several years ago out of a, a, just a debauched alcoholic lifestyle. 
And part of his conversion, as well as miraculous conversions, where, I mean, just amazing stuff happened in his life. And he cleaned up his life. There's a bunch of trash going on in his life. And he had been clean and sober for years. And about two months ago, he just, and his wife decided, well, you know, I'm good now. Maybe I can have a glass of wine with my dinner. Then two months, he was full-blown alcoholic again. Just dove right into the neck of the bottle. What's the narrative running in his head? God's done. I've totally done. No. God remains faithful to persistent sinners or fallen saints. What's the condition? We just come to God and say, I need your help, please. And believe he wants to. And he does. But I can tell you that story. It's the middle of the story, but a fellow I was just talking to him this week, and he says, I would never have believed when I was in the neck of the bottle that anybody would ever be so kind to me as they have. He's not running back again. Stay tuned to the story. Chapter 26. No, let's not do that. God disqualified men. Here's two guys. So, birth first comes out as red. His whole body looks like a hairy garment. What does that look like? I think Rebecca looked at this and said, I just gave birth to a cat. <laughs> he looks like an animal. And see, in Scripture, we're supposed to be the image of God taking care of animals, but an animal is a wild thing that eats your chickens. I just gave birth to an animal, is what it's saying. Oh my gosh, this is not good. But the other dude, his hand is grasping Esau's heel. And what do we think about from Genesis chapter 3? What does the serpent do? He crushes the heel of the Messiah. That does not sound good. That does not sound good. You look at the story. Esau is the despiser. Lives for immediate pleasure. Comes in from the field. He's the, you know, he's the man's man, if you put it in stereotypical ways. He's out shooting things and doing athletics and the manly guy, and he comes back in. I'm famished! I'm famished! And he's willing to sell the entire birthright of God for, for crying out, vegan soup. Not even chili con carne. He's a despiser. He's a despiser. How about the other dude, Jacob? Well, he's the deceiver. Now, if you're, I mean, I had two sons that I raised, Don and David. What did I teach both of them? Share your stuff. How, would, how did that work out with them? It took a little work. What does Jacob do when he's got red stew and his brother is hungry? Hey, have some stew. No, 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 no. Ruthly manipulates the circumstance to his own advantage. This is a bad kid. Okay, now, for a moment, you're God. You're looking at these two kids. Okay, what's your response? We're starting over. <laughs> we can make a third one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
But see, God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. What does God do? This is the key. No one, no one, no one, no one is so messed up that God can't use you. No one, I don't care who you are and what you've done, no one is so messed up that they can't be used by God. I could tell you stories. You may know some. I've got a pastor friend who got saved in jail. And he was in jail for really good reasons. No one is so messed up that God can't use you. And the question I want to ask you is, do you believe that for you? It's easy to see somebody else's story, how God can use him or her. Look at your own stuff. Because most of us here got stuff in our life, we would do anything to push replay and do it over. No one is so messed up that God can't use you. No one. Do you believe it? You look at this. Genesis 26. There's a famine in the land. What do you think? Oy. We've been here before. It does not sound good. What did Abraham do when he had a famine in the land? He went to Egypt and gave up a wife. Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Don't go to Egypt. Live in the land where I told you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I'll be with you. I'll bless you. For to you and your descendants, I'll give all these lands. will confirm the earth I sold to your father Abraham. This is amazing. I'll make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky. Give them all these lands through your springs. All the nations will be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. He's repeating it to Isaac. It's going down the family line. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, my instructions. And what we see are two righteous men. Abraham, Isaac. Well, they have sin in their life. But fundamentally, they're righteous men. What does that mean? It means, first of all, they love Yahweh among the gods. So when Abraham goes into Canaan, he doesn't worship Baal. He worships Yahweh. When Isaac goes into the Philistine area, he doesn't worship Dagon. He worships Yahweh. Loyal to the creator of heaven and earth, to Jesus. Trust what Yahweh says, even when it makes no sense. When he says you're going to have a baby, Abraham says, yeah, okay, I believe it. Doesn't make any sense to me how you're going to get a baby, but here we go. What is it in your life? We did the crosses last week. You were here, the sticks, remember? Where's the line? Where you say, I'll trust you this far, God. See, righteous people advance the line or get rid of the line. How far will you trust God? When he says, this is the way it is. Righteous people keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, caring for the widow, the orphan, the poor, the stranger, and look for provision in Messiah. That's what righteous people do. What does Isaac do? What does he do? He gives away his wife. Have we heard this before? Come on, dude. Like, what in the world are you doing? Giving away your life because you're afraid? The point is, family stories shape lives. I'm sure that Isaac had heard the story of his daddy giving Sarah away, not once but twice, and how God had protected her something. I don't Who knows what went on? 
But he's repeating a family story, a sin. Like, what the heck is going on? Why? We're not told. It's just that, yep, there it is again. Does that disqualify him? No, but it brings consequences in his life. I was going to be a long time. I'm like king of the Philistines. Looked down and saw Isaac caressing his wife. She summoned Isaac and said, She's your wife. Why did you, why did you say she's my sister? Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What have you done to me? Like, one of these guys made taking our wife and really got us in trouble. Like, come on. Abimelech, the, he's not a worship of Yahweh, but he's a righteous guy. And Isaac learned a lesson from him. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. This is a pattern that develops. Isaac plants crops in the land the same year, a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich. His wife continued to grow until he was very wealthy. He had many flocks, herds, servants that the Philistines envied him. Faithfulness brings envied blessing. Irresponsibly brings mess in your life. And we live here at Grace Community Church as an example of faithful people showing the blessing that God brings because we've been a blessed congregation and we continue that because we try to live faithfully and righteously here and people look and say man what's with you guys the pattern goes on he's trying to live there they dig wells and they get in fights about it so this is one of them so when they get in a fight he just moved on and dug another one when they quarrel over that he moved on then he finds one Rehoboth saying, Now the Lord has given us room, so we'll flourish the land. They move to Beersheba. What's he doing? You going to fight over this? Okay, I'll let you have it. I'll move over here. You going to fight over that? Okay, we'll move over here. Is that passivity, timidity, or peacemaking? The Lord appeared, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, I'm with you. I'll bless you, increase your numbers. And descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham, Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of Yahweh. See, that's the righteous pattern again. Hey, look at this. Isaac and his people do all they can to live in peace with other people. They are peacemakers. We live in a society right now that is increasingly being characterized by outrage and invective. Virtue signaling is the thing to do. Are you outraged by the right things? Are you insulting the right people? We live a different way. We live in a way that honors people, seeks their dignity and respect, seeks to serve even enemies, because it's what Jesus did for us. And we're going to continue to live that way. And I just call you, what are you tweeting? What are you putting up on your Instagram feed? What blogs are you reading and liking? What news reports are you saying, get him? Are you saying, dude, you don't have to do that? It's a picture that comes from this picture of righteous man, Isaac. Some lessons. First of all, Jesus' followers care for the troubles of others. Jesus' people pray for the troubles of others. It's both of them. It's not just I pray, it's that I reach out and care relationally or whatever is done. One of my students, uh, 
this week wanted to take Sherry and me out to, to dinner. I think he wanted a better grade. <laughs> said, I'll take you out to a nice dinner, Gary. I said, okay, that sounds great. So I took Sherry, and she'd been sick and got a stomach bug when we were back in Kansas City. And she, okay, I'm feeling better. I want to go. So we did. Okay, get rest of your choice. Nothing's too good. So we went to Mod Pizza. I said, Carrie, we can do better than that. I said, we like mod pizza. Okay, so here we go. We're in there, and the server's back there behind, and she says, you know, how's your day, and that kind of stuff. I always try to engage background people like this, because she's not a background person. She's a real person. How's your day going? I said, it's great. How's your day going? And she's kind of taken aback, because that's not normal, because I pressed it one step further. And I started telling her a story. This guy's paying for my dinner, because I'm his professor, and he wants a grade, and we laughed a little bit, and... She said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I teach at Western Seminary, and I teach about Jesus and how he heals people's lives. Oh, she said, that's nice. Throwing out a seed. And then I asked something about her life, and she told me some stuff as she's putting together my salad. She made a tour around to clean tables and came over and re-engaged me in conversation. Why? Because I cared. I'll be back at Mod Pizza. I don't know if she'll be there or not, but see, that's what people do. You care about background people. Another thing, God's promise does not mean, does not mean ease and comfort. It doesn't. God's promise is real. God's blessing is real, but it does not mean no conflict. It does not mean everything will go well, at least not all the time, as we see in the story. And we'll see it as it unpacks as we go through the next several chapters. It doesn't. It also means when trouble comes, it does not mean God has failed or abandoned us. It doesn't mean that. But it sure feels that way. It sure feels that way. It sure feels that way. God, if you really cared, why in the world? And see, a serpent's narrative is really simple. God's too busy for you. If you come back to him again, he will roll his eyes and say, what are you doing here again? That's that's not serpent. That's a serpent's narrative. What's God's narrative? Glad to see you, son. So glad you're here, daughter. Please. We can forfeit God's blessing. We can. Isaac did. Esau did. We can forfeit God's blessing by despising his promises and rejecting his way. As we'll see, Esau tries to get the blessing back, but he can't. It's gone. doesn't mean God's done with him. At the end of the story, Esau's actually doing really well. But the birthright's gone. It'll never be back. We can lose blessing what God wants to give us by despising it and not accepting it, by rejecting his way. That's why the call to be faithful is such an important call. Can I lose God's blessing? Really? Yeah. Yeah, you can. You can. So, God hates me. No, no. God's really do amazing stuff to you, but you can lose stuff. You can. Don't like that, but it's real. What we do and this is important, I think, we interpret our lives according to God's story. 
The serpent's narrative is, you stink. You're so fat. You're going to try that? Like, really? Come on. You'll, you'll just embarrass yourself. Don't even try. I know what you did, and so will everybody else if you keep going that direction. See, a serpent's narrative is like that. It's condemnation. The family story you're growing up in may be a disaster zone. But see, the point of it is, God's got a story, and we can join his story simply by coming in. My daughter, who's bearing twins, not my bio daughter, grew up in a heritage of death. Her mom died when she was like eight. Her dad dropped dead when she was in her early 20s. Her life is haunted by death. She's joined our story now, and Sherry and I are her mom and dad. And we live in a legacy of life. But she still struggles with the fears. But we talk about it. We pray about it. Family stories can change. You don't have to get trapped in a story because God's story is a bigger, more powerful story. Worship team, why don't you come on up here? Fundamentally, fundamentally, Because we live in God's story, and because God was one who was pursuing peace and blessing with all people, we pursue peace and blessing with all people. We do everything we can possibly do to live in peace and honor even enemies. And above all, we do everything we can do to receive God's blessing in our life and to honor and to praise Him. Why? He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who died for our sins, rose to bring us newness of life, exalted above every hostile power to crush the serpent, pours out the Holy Spirit so we can be transformed and healed and renewed and empowered. And bottom line, I love this psalm. I love the psalm. Give thanks to the Lord and praise his name, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. You know, that's the question. Who will you praise? Last Sunday we gathered here in this auditorium and nine people indicated they want to know more about Jesus because they weren't quite sure what to do with him yet. Yay, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you're here and you don't know quite what to do with Jesus. We'd love to talk to you. Prayer team's off on either side. Communion table's there. You can always do business with Jesus. We'd love to help. Luis Palau, great evangelist, last Good Friday, preached probably his last sermon ever. He's dying of lung cancer. And Dorv Hope, down in Portland, 50 people received Christ at his Good Friday service. What a way to go. What a way to go faithful man of God traumatic testimony there in Argentina that's the legacy we want to leave is faithful blessed sharing God's blessing with other people let's pray Father thank you for loving us even when we're really unlovable but more so Holy Spirit thank you for empowering us convicting us steering us toward that which is Christ-like Jesus, you died to bring us forgiveness of our sins. You died to take our shame to the grave with you. 
You rose to bring us life and honor and courage. Poured out the Holy Spirit so that we can live that as a unified body of Christ. And we want to do that. Teach us, show us those places where we've put a line and we're not willing to take it down yet to follow you. Holy Spirit, show us those lines so we can erase them and move ahead in following you and what you have for us, I pray. Guide us, empower us, give us joy and hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go change the world. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.